I am really excited this morning to be able to open God's Word with you. Go to one of my favorite passages of scriptures, Philippians chapter 3. This was actually my dad's, I think, I'm not sure he even called it his life verse, but this was kind of it. This idea of the importance of pressing on. Because life can be tough, ministry can be hard. There are those moments in our life that would make us want to turn away. And Paul's encouragement here is that you press on, that you press on. Now, you got to understand context, right? Let's remember how he started this passage. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. That our confidence is in him, it's not in the flesh. In fact, his whole point is here, run from legalism. Don't, don't start looking at, hey, I've got to do this and this. Run and lean into grace. If you weren't with us last week, I hardly ever do this. But last week, one of my favorite verses in all the Bible, so if you weren't here, I'd encourage you to get a podcast. But it, it is the great privilege and joy, and for Paul, the great focus of his life was that I may know him. The power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, be made conformable to his death. And now we pick it up in verse 12. And Paul writes this, Not that I have already obtained... Or have already become perfect. But I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on. Press on. Forgetting what lies behind. Reaching forward. Press on. One of the most important pieces of the Christian life is in those moments when we have fallen down, those moments when we've gotten tripped up, to get back up to press on. When things get hard, when things get difficult, to continue to press on. And there's three pieces here, as you begin to break it down, verse 12, verse 13, and verse 14, that are so good. The first one is, what he's telling us is to press on to maturity. And to understand, the key of it is understanding that last phrase of verse 12. That I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. So let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus save you? Why, why, why did he come to die to provide you salvation? Was it not, as we talked about last week, to know you, to restore you to relationship with him? By the way, to redeem you, to make you into that person that, that was originally intent. And the idea of how it's expressed to us is that he saved us. What he, why he laid hold of us was so that we could now again become more like him. We looked at Romans 8.29 last week, which is at the heart of all this. For he, for whom he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. That's why he laid hold of us. Let me give you a couple other scriptures. Galatians 4.19, my children with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you. That's why he laid hold of us to save us. We could know him. We could now become those image bearers of him. That's why... He saved us. I love 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 
He says, but we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into that same image from glory to glory. Paul says, listen, I press on that I may attain to the maturity of which Christ saved me, and that is that I may become like Jesus. And his whole point here is this. His whole point here is that this is a never-ending quest. He says, I don't count myself to have already attained. Now what's interesting is best we understand uh, kind of the timelines. Paul at this point would have come, you know, have been a Christian for some 30 years. So started on the Damascus Road, 30 years later he's in Rome, he's writing his letter to the Philippian, he's walked with Jesus, he served Jesus, and his whole point here is, is that I still have not reached that ultimate of being exactly like Jesus. It's that never-ending quest. So why is it a never-ending quest? Why is it that this side of heaven will never get there? Well, one is, is you've got to think about who Jesus is, Right? So this last week, uh, I've got a group of guys, we're getting together once a month this year, we're talking through theology. And uh, this month it was Christology, the study of Christ, the study of, of Jesus becoming one of us, and that whole uh, hypostatic union and all those great theological terms, and then how he lived and how he was both man and God. And, you know, in the midst of all that, you know, you begin to look at his mercy, you begin to look at his wisdom, you begin to look at his love, you begin to look at his grace, you begin to look at his truth. And the depth of it is just so far beyond even what we can comprehend here. And that's part of it. That's why it's a ne- part of it is a never-ending journey because the depth of who Jesus is. And so he's continually refining it. Secondly, is that, you know, we're still in this process of redemption. And sometimes as Christians, we forget this. When I accepted Jesus, I was redeemed. My soul was was made right. I was a new creature in Christ, right? But there's part of me, the part you're looking at, hasn't been redeemed yet. And that's my flesh. And one day, it's going to be redeemed when I get to heaven. But it is my flesh that still is affected by sin. In fact, isn't it interesting when the Bible talks about sin, it talks about the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. It's what's tied to this body. And so as long as I'm here, I still have this part of me that hasn't been fully redeemed yet, but one day will be. And so this never-ending struggle of wanting to become more like Jesus. Paul says, that's what I'm pressing on to. I don't see myself as having arrived, but I see myself as continuing on. Now, here's the problem. For someone, especially like me, I don't, I don't know your personality type. I have uh, been diagnosed as a uh, type A personality in that uh, I, I like challenges. I, I like seeing the hill that's got to be conquered, making my list, uh, checking my boxes. And for someone like me who says, okay, Maturity in Christ. Perfect. We're going to go after it. So what do I got to do? Ah, got to read the Bible. Check. We can do that. I got to pray every day. Check. I can do that. Uh, I need to be at church. Check. I can tick that box, right? Uh, Oh, by the way, some maturity just takes time. All right, I can do this for years. 
you know, and so I start ticking the boxes, right? Now, let me ask you, for those of you that know Jesus, been around a little bit, is that going to make me mature in Christ? No. Well, okay, but you also got to have knowledge, so now we can begin to study. Does knowledge make someone mature in Christ? No. What makes someone mature in Jesus? Relationship. Right? That I may know him. That's the whole context of what he's talking about here. And his whole point is, is that I don't, you know, as much as it is my heart's desire to know Jesus, it's still I want to continue to grow in that knowledge that I may continue to mature. And Paul reminds us that we must be continually be pressing into Jesus. Not, not, now, is there anything wrong with reading the Bible? No, we should. Is there anything wrong with praying? No, we should. Is there anything wrong with being a church? No, we should. Those are all pieces of it. But those things are not what make us mature in Christ. Those are not the things that continue to conform us to the image of Christ. What does that is relationship with Jesus. In fact, let me take you back to that verse I showed you. It's one of my favorites. It's really probably not all that well known. But it says, but we all with unveiled face beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord. It's really easy to read that, kind of skip over it. Can I tell you what he's saying? See, in that whole passage there in 2 Corinthians, he's talking about how the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. His whole point is, we with unveiled face, we who have had the veil removed, we who can see Jesus, we have the eyes of faith, we can know him. But the reality is, we can know him, but do we know him face to face today? No, that day is coming. How do we see Jesus today? To his word. That's why he says we, we behold him as in a mirror. But look what happens. As we behold him, the glory of the Lord as in a mirror, we are being transformed into that same image. So let me ask you, is that me transforming or is that God? Well, just as from the Lord the Spirit. It's not my work, it's his work. So as I come and I meet Jesus and I know him and I'm leaning into him He's doing that work of maturing me and making me like Christ. One of the most significant books, spiritual books that I ever read, probably had to do with the time in my life when I read it. It was uh, called Steps to Spiritual Growth by Miles Stafford. It's also gone under the title The Greenleaf Letters. But it, they were letters written to a young believer. And I was in college wasn't a young believer, but there was just some truths in this book. And one of the, the pieces of this was a quote by Norman Doughty. And it, it, it just was revolutionary to my life. So I, I want you to read this and, and process it with me. This is what he writes. If I am to be like him, speaking of Jesus, then God in his grace must do it. So throw down every endeavor and say, I cannot do it. The more I try, the further I get from his likeness. So what shall I do? Ah, the Holy Spirit says, you cannot do it. Just withdraw. Come out of it. You have been in the arena. You have been endeavoring. If I was writing it, you have been ticking the boxes. You are a failure. Come out and sit down. And as you sit there, behold him. Look at him. Don't try and be like him. Just look at him. 
Just be occupied with him. Forget about trying to be like him. Instead of letting that fill your mind and heart, let him fill it. Just behold him. Look upon him through his word. Come to the word for one purpose, and that is to see Jesus. Why? Because as we behold him, as we grow in our knowledge of him, as we lean into him, he will make us like him. We will be transformed. And that's what Paul says, press on, press on to maturity. By the way, this is a little bit of a shot on the, over the bow of all of those Judaizers who are looking at their maturity because, you know, they keep the feasts and they don't eat these foods and they're circumcised. And, and Paul says, no, 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 no. No, it's about knowing Jesus. Lean into Jesus. Press on to maturity. The second thing he says is, is to press on from failure. You know, in this passage, we didn't go back and reread it today, but, you know, Paul has kind of exposed to us, reminded of us of his wasted years. I mean, they weren't, you know, at the time he didn't seem as wasted, but he does now. I mean, he talks about how he was circumcised on the eighth day, that he was, uh, uh, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin, of how he became a Pharisee, knowing the law. He then talks about how... He, uh, even in his zeal for the Lord, persecuted the church, right? And then how does he end that? And it's all rubbish. I count it but loss for the excellency of knowing Jesus. It's basically his failure. It, it, it was his misunderstanding. It was his regret. And, folk, the reality is, is that I think almost all of us have those pieces of regret, of failure, of wasted years in our life. For some, it was before we came to Christ because we didn't know him, but, you know, we were just doing our own thing. And for some, it's after we've come to know Christ. We even had those moments where we didn't walk with him, and there's that sense of regret now. Or maybe for some of us, it's even in both of those areas. And his whole point here is, is that I have to forget what's behind that's what he says here in verse 13 brethren i do not regard myself as having laid hold of it but one thing i do forgetting what lies behind because here's what the enemy does the enemy wants to take your failure and my failure and the guilt the shame and all of that and he wants to continue kind of to put it upon us to weigh us down to get our eyes off of Christ, to sit back here instead of pressing on in Christ, just feeling so bad about yesterday. The problem is you can't fix yesterday. Can't. Paul says, got to press on. In fact, Satan is so subtle. So here's how, we, here's how he does it. He, he tempts us, right? Think of Adam and Eve in the garden. Look at this fruit. Oh, it looks good, right? By the way, it'll make you wise. It'll make you like God. You ever experience that? You're looking there and you know, hey, this is something I probably shouldn't be doing, but it looks so good and it looks like, man, it's going to make you happy. And it looks like, you know, and then you hear the whispers, oh, nobody will ever know. It really won't matter. And, you know, and, and, and what, what makes it wrong anyway? You've got a good heart. You know, it's all that stuff going on. And then the moment you step across the line, the moment you take the bite, what does the enemy do? Ha! Huh! And you call yourself a Christian. How could God possibly love someone? I mean, is that true or is that just me? 
Yeah, it's true. It's what he does. It's one of his things. And now he gets us living in regret and this idea that, hey, God couldn't possibly love you. Look at you. You can't be a good Christian. Look what you just did. And that's what he does. And Paul says, hey, you know what? I could live in the regret of the fact that the church that I now build up, I persecuted and I hauled good people off into prison. But forgetting what lies behind... I reach forward for what lies ahead. Folk, there's a question that sometimes we struggle with as Christians of how do we put failure in the rearview mirror. If I could maybe suggest a couple things that I found helpful. Actually, number one's going to seem contradictory, but I think it's a really important piece. Number one, I think to be able to forget what's behind, you actually got to remember it, you got to own it, and you actually got to build a little memorial to it. Say, really? Yeah. In fact, I would suggest to you that if you deal with a habitual sin, and probably the one that comes to mind uh, for a lot of people that I've talked with is, uh, is like pornography. Something like that. It just, it's, it's, it's there, you don't want to do it, but it continues to trip you up. I honestly think that one of the reasons why so many people face failure in this is they are too quick to run to grace. Because they're Christians, they know that if I confess, he's, you know, to forgive us. And so they feel so bad and they confess and they want to get rid of the, the guilt. And, and, and the problem is there is a sorrow that leads to repentance. And I think there's a healthy piece. You know, they say the first way to get over something is actually to, to honestly own it and to, to own that it's wrong, to own the guilt, to own the shame. You know, just kind of take that emotional snapshot of what's going on in your life. It promised me a lot, and I'm sitting here empty. It promised me happiness, and I'm feeling guilt. And drive a little stake in the ground there, say, man, I don't ever want to come back here. And you say, Steve, is that even biblical? And I'm going to suggest to you it is, because I'm going to remind you of Peter. Peter in the garden, who, by the way, Jesus told him, you're going to deny me. He goes, no, 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 I won't never do that, right? Luke tells us something very interesting. The third time he denied him, the cock crows Jesus, who's up here being ridiculed and mocked and slapped, do you know that Jesus actually turns and looks at Peter and catches his eye? Ooh. You don't think that drove a little stake in the ground there? Oh, by the way, Jesus dies. He's raised from the dead. You know, hey, grace, I'm going ahead of the guys to, to Galilee. Make sure you tell them and Peter, right? So then they get up there, and how does Jesus meet them? Ah, by a fire. Ooh, where did, Jesus, where did Peter deny him three times? A fire? Actually, a coal fire. The fire Jesus builds is a coal fire. How many times did Peter deny Jesus? How many times did Jesus there by that coal fire now ask Peter, Peter, do you love me? and feed my sheep. What's he doing? Is he trying to build up guilt? No, what he's trying to do is he's trying to drive a stake in the ground, and yeah, you don't ever want to go back there, because once you do that, then what you're able to do now is to build on, move on to repentance, 
and I agree with God this was wrong, and I don't ever want to go back there. And now I confess it. In fact, one of the great ways to do this is just even to write it down, put it on a piece of paper. Now take 1 John 1, 9 and confess it. Write 1 John 1, 9 on there. If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us. Then crumble it up, throw it away, or better yet, take a match, light the thing on fire. It's gone. Because now when the enemy comes and wants to put guilt, and oh yeah, but you, no man, it's forgiven. It's forgiven. It's gone. And then what do we do? Uh, Now we stand in our identity in Christ. I have been forgiven. I am loved. That will never be remembered again by my God. Because he has taken it away as far as the east is from the west. I am a child. By the way, one of the fun things, did you notice that, you know, Paul, uh, Paul here says, forgetting what lies behind, but he just told us a story, right? What does it mean to forget? It doesn't mean that somehow you don't ever remember it again. What he, he does, he doesn't deal with guilt about it. He uses it for ministry. And, folk, one of the things that I would suggest to you is that sometimes it's going to be the biggest failures of your life when you deal with it right and you move on with Jesus, that later on it's going to be that place where you minister to more people out of that peace. You know, Paul says in in 2 Corinthians, with with the comfort we have been comforted, we are to comfort others. It's that peace of brokenness that now we can share with others who are back in that struggle And so it doesn't bring the regret, it doesn't bring the pain, it brings now ministry. See, our God is a God of redemption. And then lastly, you lean into Jesus today. As I mentioned before, you know, all of us have things yesterday, back in our life, we wish we could go fix. The truth is you can't. All we can deal with it is deal with it today, and then we can fix today. Today we can lean into Jesus. Today we can follow him. Then as we come to verse 14... It's press on towards the reward. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul here reminds us, as he does so often in his writings, that at the heart of who you and I are as believers, our worldview is a two-world view. He's going to get to it. In fact, next week we're going to talk about it. Our citizenship is in heaven. This world is not our home. We're just passing through. Folk, if you don't understand this, you will never understand how to look at life as God wants you to look at it. And it's sad because, in, in, you know, in Christianity, just like in life, there's pendulum swings. So some of you, you know, more mature like I am, <clears throat> That had been around for a while. But you know, when I was growing up, there was great emphasis in the church about Jesus returning, about the coming of Christ. We used to sing about it all the time, uh, and, and we would talk eschatology, and we would talk end times, and Jesus is coming, and man, we're looking forward to that day. And to be honest with you, it probably got to an unhealthy point at times with some folk, because we get you know, so focused on, okay, who are these ten nations going to be, and who's the Antichrist, and what's the mark of the beast, and you know, kind of got lost in the trees, and you lost the focus. The sad thing is, is though... As the pendulum is swung and people say, yeah, but it's got to be about, you know, how do we live this out today? It's, it really has come here, and it's amazing to me how many Christians have no idea about this concept that this world is not our home. We don't talk about it in our churches. 
In fact, to be honest with you, it's one of the, I think, one of the really sad things is we, we can hardly find any new worship music that talks about that day. We've gone too far. Folks, you cannot live the way God wants you to live if you don't live with the knowledge that this world's not our home. It's just over and over. Jesus reminds about it. It's not about here. Don't, don't put your attention here on the things where moth and rust corrupt. Put your attention on that which is heavenly. It's at the heart of what he's saying here. And what he's saying is this, is that I press him forward for the goal of the prize. The prize. The prize is for reward. Of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And, and Paul so often, Jesus, you look at him in Luke 19, Matthew 24 and 25. It talks about this idea of reward. And I'm going to be honest with you. Every time I talk about reward, I get pushback from, from Christians. Now, some don't like to talk about it because I think... I think they don't like to talk about it because they came out of a works-oriented, legalistic, that my salvation is built upon what I do, right? And now we're talking grace, right? And we are saved by grace. So let me be really clear here. When we talk about reward, it has nothing, nothing to do with salvation. We are saved by grace through faith alone. That is how salvation takes place. But you also have to understand that now as a child of God, God has promised reward to those who follow him. My dad used to put it like this. It's the best deal you got going. He saves you for nothing and then pays you for everything you do for him. That's a pretty good way to look at it. And it's just like you think about even in a family. Now that I'm a part of the family, when you're in a family and your, your child does well and, and does chores and actually goes above and beyond, you, you want to reward them for that. And that's what Paul talks about. Secondly, I think that some people push back because in their mind, if I'm doing it for reward, I'm not doing it for Jesus. And they think it's a wrong motive. The problem is, is you're arguing now with Jesus and Paul. Because they both put emphasis of you do it for reward. Because reward and honoring Jesus are the same thing. You know, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 uh, that, you know, it is our aim to be pleasing to him. And it's all in the context of, of reward. So it's not being selfish it is i want to honor jesus and oh by the way there's going to be some great reward for that i got to tell you what i really think is at the heart of it for many people that they were to be honest i think most people who don't like to talk about rewards don't want to deal with it because you know what if you honestly believed it it'd have to affect the way you live today it'd have to affect the way i give it have to affect the way I spend my time. And the reality is, that's why it's talked about so much in Scripture. It should affect. Yes, we don't live for today. We live for that day. We're going to see Jesus. Oh, by the way, there's going to be a reward. Paul says, I press toward the goal of the prize for the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. In fact, do you remember what he says a little bit later in 1 Corinthians? He says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may win. And he's not saying only one's going to get reward his point is run to win 
He says, I discipline myself so that I won't lose the race. It's not about salvation. It's about reward. So if I could, in the last couple of minutes we have, just give you a real quick biblical perspective on what the Bible says about rewards. Now here's the thing. When you stop and think about it, the idea of rewards is completely consistent with the character of God. You see, our God is a God of justice. That's why justice is really important to us. That's why for some of us, we, we, you know, we watch the news, we get so upset because we see injustice. Well, our God's a God of justice. And so one day, things have to be brought into the right even keel. And that's going to take place. And in fact, he even says that at a point in a man wants to die and then the judgment, right? Well, for unbelievers, that judgment is called the great white throne judgment. If you want to read about it, it is in Revelation chapter 20. And everybody in the great white throne judgment, none of them are getting into heaven. None of them. They're all going into the lake of fire. But it's interesting because when you read it, they're all judged according to their works. Really? Yeah. None of them are getting into heaven. But this is where the equity comes. The punishment piece is dependent upon their works. For a believer, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that judgment of all believers, not one of them are going to hell. Not one of them are going to the lake of fire. They are all going to heaven. It has nothing to do with that. But the Bible says that we will receive rewards. It's called the, the judgment seat of Christ. Uh, in the Greek, the bima. And the picture, it can be a kind of a, a, like a courtroom thing. But really the better picture is the Olympics. And, and because what the bima talks about is a lifted seat where the judges would watch the races. And then they would reward those who ran the best. And you and I, every single one of us who know Jesus are going to stand there. And we are going to give an account count and again it's not better whether we get to heaven or not but it's about reward you say well what is he looking for well i don't have time but i encourage you to read first corinthians three and four i think there's three things he points out there one is did we live in alignment with god's word secondly did we press on were we faithful thirdly did we do it for the right motives did we do it to try to get money did we do it to try to honor the lord but we're all going to stand and give an account and Paul's whole point here is this, press on. Man, press on to maturity. Don't, don't get stagnant. Don't, don't somehow think that you've arrived because that's a prideful piece. Press on to maturity. Lean into Jesus. Secondly, press on from failure. Don't let the failure of the past rob you of the joy of following Jesus today. Our God is a God of redemption. This one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, pressing forward. Number three, press on for the reward. You can't go back and fix yesterday, but man, you can live for Jesus today. Press on for the reward. Our God is a God of justice. He is a God who is equitable. Our God is a God who would do right. Now, here's, here's the piece. Why do we got to be encouraged to press on? Because it's tough. It's hard. We got an enemy. We get overwhelmed with the guilt of the past we it's hard to live for jesus I, I just some of you may you know man you've you've known jesus you've served him so long it's just tough today could i read leave you with these words from paul 
in 2 Corinthians 4. He says, therefore we do not lose heart. For though our outer man is decaying, you think they had a coronavirus back then? <laughs> Yet, our inner man is being renewed day by day. For this momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Reward. Far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are unseen. For the things which are seen, i.e. this world, are temporary. But the things which are not seen is eternal. Press on. Press on. Press on. Don't quit. Don't get weighed down. Press on. 